Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. A couple of things before we start today's episode. First, I'm going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area the first week of June, recording a couple stories. So if any listeners are interested in perhaps telling their abyss story, just reach out to me via my website, craigheacockmd.com. Second thing, this morning I was reading an article from a throwaway journal called Clinical Psychiatry News. And very interesting, the cover um, story was ketamine versus ECT, results of first head-to-head trial for severe depression. And this article was summarizing a head-to-head trial that uh, was published last year in the International Journal of Neuropharmacology, Neuropsychopharmacology, where they looked at 186 patients aged 18 to 85 hospitalized with severe unipolar depression, and they either got six treatments of ECT uh, three times weekly, or they got six treatments of ketamine, 0.5 mg per kg, over 40 minutes. And interestingly, in contrast to the episode I did uh, a few weeks ago, they found ECT to be more effective overall, had a 63% remission rate versus 46%. Uh, but that was age bifurcated. So patients under 50 did better with ketamine, 77% remission versus 50 for ECT. But patients over 50, 61% remitted with ECT, 37% with ketamine. So that points out something that Dr. Fisher and I discussed in the ECT versus ketamine versus TMS episode, that it, it does appear that older patients don't do as well with ketamine. Although I think the study is a huge problem, and regular listeners to the podcast might guess what that is, but um, they were using sub- dissociative low-dose ketamine, 0.5 mg per kg. And in my clinical experience and the experience of a lot of other people doing ketamine, you're going to get much more powerful effects and more remission of symptoms if you do higher dose, like 0.7, 0.8, 0.9 milligram per kilogram. So it'd be very interesting if this study were done, ECT versus ketamine, but they actually used truly therapeutic doses of ketamine, not the low subtherapeutic doses that are often used at a lot of the uh, kind of dock-in-the-box ketamine clinics. All right, let's move on to today's episode. The most requested topic over the last two years and the most requested topic in the recent listener survey is families, psychiatric illness, and how to work with that complex dynamic. So I've been thinking about doing this episode for some time, but it was not a problem to think of who I wanted to sit down with. Here in Fort Collins, there's a child psychiatrist named Dr. Usha Udapa, who I've known for a long time. We were residents together at Brown many years ago. She and I worked together for eight years at a psych hospital and clinic here, and she continues to be a real go-to for me for all things child and family. And I asked her if she wanted to join the podcast, and she was excited to do so. So anyway, I think this is going to be very interesting for anyone who has tried to negotiate those complicated dynamics of how you work with parents and children and siblings and couples and meds and diagnosis and prognosis and how you dance that difficult dance. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Before we jump into our conversation today uh, about families, I just want to tell a little story about you and me, Usha. Mm-hmm. When we worked together 
back at Mountain Crest, I remember this day vividly. I got a letter in the mail from family, and it was an incredibly painful letter. And it's actually a letter I read on the episode Letters from the Past. Anyway, I brought this letter into your office, and I started reading it to you, and it was so horrible, and I was so sad. And you looked at it, and you, you started reading it, and you just threw it in the trash can. You said, don't read that. Get rid of that. Put that away. And I said, I've been reading it over and over and over and trying to figure out what I did wrong. And you said, no, throw that away. And you said, you said you're a really good doctor. And you gave me a hug. And actually, fortunately, I grabbed that letter out of the trash can. So years later, I could read it on the podcast. But that was the sweetest thing because it's, it's, uh, it feels so lonely in this profession. And to know that I could come into your office and share this letter with you and you would just thousand percent go to bat for me. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'm, I didn't remember that. Actually, <laughs> I remember more when I first met you when we were in our training at, uh, in Rhode Island, actually. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Because I find this all the time. You probably do in our work, too, that with ourselves and our patients and our family members, some of the most powerful moments that you remember, other people don't remember because it was yes. just, like for you, it was probably, oh, Craig came in my office and whatever. He read me a letter and I threw it away. Right. For me, that was one of the most painful days in my early years of being a psychiatrist. And I came in and you were so funny and sweet, and but it didn't even register on your, on your memory bank. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I... So glad you're here because when I was thinking about this episode, which is actually the most requested topic we've had, I thought, okay, I want to sit down with somebody and talk about families and working with families and patients and mental illness. And so I thought, who better than a child adolescent psychiatrist? Because you know, maybe a lot of people go into child adolescent psychiatry thinking it's about children and adolescents, but really, it's about families. It's about family. <laughs> it's about parents. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be here. And this is uh, going to be a good conversation. Yeah, I think so, too. So just in general, um, I, I came up with a list of questions and I thought maybe we'd I thought maybe we just have a conversation almost like the listeners are sitting down at a table with us and you and I are just talking shop here. What if we just start with this idea of how do we each think about working with our patients in the context of family? And um, maybe I'd be curious to start, Usha, maybe in the child-adolescent psychiatry mm -hmm. perspective. How do, you know, how do you think about working with your patients in, in the context of family? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean again, working with kids and families, I think that's really the only way to do it. You know, anytime we have a family walking in the door with um, a child or a teenager, um, there is no way you are going to get the full story unless you also include the family. And, the, you know, and we can talk a little bit more about that uh, in length later. But I don't think it just applies to kids and adolescents, even adults. I mean, unless they're, you know, a hermit in the woods living on their own with no support, we have to have family be part of the treatment. I mean, now, does it have to be birth family? No, it can be friends whom you might consider family or any sort of strong support. I think it's hard to treat mental health illness in isolation. Yeah. And actually, in your example, a hermit in the woods, I would definitely want to find some family <laughs> yes. to find out why is this hermit in the woods? Right. What happened with the family? Right. Yeah, I think many people can get on board with this idea that child adolescent psychiatry and psychology and therapy is all about family. But for some reason, as soon as people hit, you know, college age, young adulthood, 
you know, we consider them quote unquote adults and then we start meeting with them individually and this whole family idea just seems to go out the window. Right. When we talk mental health illness, we have to at some level involve the family because some of this is, I mean, it, it doesn't just involve the individual person, it involves the husband or the wife, it involves the children. So I, you know, in my opinion, it's very hard to really just try to treat a solo person without including some support system in whatever context we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because so much of mental health is so subjective, you know, in the rest of medicine, you know, your creatinine is this, your blood glucose is this, your femur has this amount of calcification, but in what we do, yes, it's so interpersonal, so intersubjective. And even this idea of, you know, is the patient depressed? Like you might get such different responses from the patient and the family members. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much do you have to deal with uh, patients not wanting family involved? You know, I'm wondering when you see maybe older adolescents or mm-hmm. like even college age kids, do you have that problem where... Your patient says, no, just me. Uh, I do uh, sometimes, particularly with my older teens, you know, 15, 16, 17, nope, I want no part of this. But having said that, most times they're not able to get in to see me until a family has made a phone call or, you know, said I need my child to come in. Uh, So typically what I try to do is bring the teenager and the parent into my office, and if the based on their body language. If it looks like the kid's not going to talk, I then very um, politely ask the parents to wait out for a little bit. And I spend some time with the teenager first, trying to get a sense of why and what. But yes, I do hear or have kids say, I do not want my parents involved for X, Y, and Z reasons. And Yeah, how do you I, deal with that? Uh, you know, I try to give, depending on the age of the kid, you know, I try to give uh, the kid some time alone first, try to get a sense, try to join with the kid. And um, if and sometimes it's applicable. Sometimes it could be the kid is a higher functioning one in the family and you want to try to get a sense. And the older the teenager is, it is important to uh, give them that time and respect and say, what you say matters. I want to hear what you say. And I'm not just joining sides with parents yeah. just because they are the adults. Mm-hmm. Are there people who you would say, okay, fine, no family involvement, you know, because I'm guessing you and I might be similar on this, that this could involve sort of not just age, but diagnostic factors, that someone's sitting in your office, and he or she says, yeah, I don't want my family involved. And yeah. clearly, yeah, if you've got a kid under 16, or, right. but you know, let's say you have a 21 year old college junior or 22 year old who's back from the army. Mm-hmm. And he or she says, yeah, do not contact my family. I'm just here alone. Yeah. yeah. How do you think about that? I think a lot depends on uh, the maturity of the kid and the diagnosis as well. So again, for kids under 18, unless they're emancipated, you know, which could mean they are either married, they're financially independent, or they're in the military, sure, you can totally just respect that and deal with them directly and not involve family. Uh, if this is a young college student who is dealing with um, any sort of uh, bipolar or schizophrenia or significant substance use where they're not in the right frame of mind to make those decisions, uh, I would still try to explain why I need to involve a family for me to be able to treat the kid or young adult successfully. 
Yeah, you know, when I think about um, pe- patients who don't want family involved, I think the way I think about it, I don't see little kids. I see a number of adolescents. But for me, if the patient is a dependent, you know, in, and including in college states, you know, parents are in Dallas, kids here, for sure. Um, and if someone is an a, independent adult, it, for me, it's, yeah, like you, it comes down to diagnosis. If If someone has a psychiatric disorder that involves, you know, derangement of insight or judgment or capacity to make medical decisions, which is actually a lot of people we see mm-hmm. because depression and bipolar disorder and substance use and psychotic disorders and can absolutely make you unable to make good decisions for yourself. So in I guess for me, I would say the the large majority of adults I absolutely insist on having some kind of contact with someone else because I just don't see many people who don't have something right. seriously right. impairing, potentially going on. Right. And it clearly uh, imp- uh, impacts the outcome for those patients, you know, whether it's depression, bipolar, even ADHD. Are they remembering to take their medications? And it's not just about medications. Are there any minor changes in their mood that as a family member or a close friend, they're able to pick up and we can treat it before things get out of control? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found too... A lot of times if people are hesitant about family involvement, I will tell them, I'll say, look, if your mom comes, if your husband comes, here's what I will ask. I will ask, do you, or what concerns do you have? Are there things you think I should know? Yeah. Do you have any questions about treatment? Yeah. And those are, I said, those are the three main questions. And it's often helpful for people to hear that I'm not going to just start doing some deep dive or reveal secrets that I, I literally just want some input. I want to talk to someone who knows them much better than I do. Right. And with teenagers, I always make it a point to spend some time for, alone with them, particularly when we are talking about substance use, sexuality, any other um, significant um, things that's going on in their life. And I always make it a point to ask them before I include family, of all these things you've talked to me about, are there some things you do not want me to share with your parents or your legal guardians? move to what are some of the most common challenges that you and I see in working with families and and patients and mental illness and trying to dance that delicate dance? Oh, gosh, Uh, that's a hard one. But one thing which comes up very frequently is um, splitting among parents about what the child needs. So one would be one parent. So this is a child under joint custody, one parent clearly believes in treating any underlying mental health issues and wanting treatment, and the other parent saying no. The second piece is maybe a parent wanting treatment, but the child saying, I'm not the problem, this is not, I don't need meds, and I don't want to be on medication. So those two come up, I would say, more than 50% of the time. So walk me through those. How do you think about each of those in, in general? Oh, goodness. So when it's a split parent, uh, as in one parent wanting and the other person not, and there's so many conflicts, I've had issue uh, times where parents won't even talk to each other, they only communicate via email when they hand off kids. Um, I 
first tried to find a way to reach to parents first. So I even have had times when I said, don't bring the kid in. I want the two of you in my office, even if not together, separately to talk about pros and cons. Um, Because again, we are talking, you know, medicine, there's so many unknowns. And when we talk mental health and brain, we don't know all the answers. So really trying to establish that relationship with parents first, we don't need to be in a hurry to push medications or even therapy down the uh, unwilling parent, first trying to understand where is their reluctance? Is this more about the concern of the child or is this more a power struggle and trying to cut through some of those barriers before I start talking, okay, this is how we can treat the kid. Mm-hmm. And if one parent's willing and one's not, and, and sometimes if these kids are in real um, unsafe settings, we might be able to override the other parent's consent and go, but that's usually a last resort for me. I try as much as I can about building some sort of relationship with a parent who's not who doesn't believe in mental health treatment and try that first. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah. Well, actually let's explore this. Yeah. Doesn't believe in mental health treatment. Cause I think, yeah, that is such a thing, but I think there's layers underneath that. Mm -hmm. So it seems like often the initial presenting thing, a parent might be, or one of two parents is, yeah, they don't quote unquote believe, don't believe in meds, don't believe in treatment. But as you drill down on that, I've found that some things come up, you know, the parent might feel that, meds their kid on meds is a you know is a concrete indicator that they have failed as parents Mm -hmm. you know it could be that a kid on meds signifies that their child's going to be like the aunt or the sister or the mom who has severe mental illness that the uh, the decision to put a kid on meds is just like sentence them to psychiatric treatment and I don't know. Is, have you found that, 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 again, this initial presenting thing, parents like, oh, we don't believe in treatment or meds, right. but really yep. it's deeper than that. It's their earlier trauma or their earlier experience. And, you know, may, they may be fully justified in having those thoughts. And our role is to try and get through some of that process of a family in as non-judgmental way as we can. Mm-hmm. Or even you know, the parent themselves has been on meds or had negative, negative psychotherapy history, because, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I'm sure you see all the time when I'm especially meeting with adolescents, young adults, when family's in the room, and the adolescent or young adult is describing his or her pain. So often, one or both of the parents are so stricken. Yes. And, you know, some of them open up honestly, a few minutes later, and they say, Yeah, this is exactly how I was when I was in high school, or, My brother who killed himself, this is totally the way he was. Yes, I'm worried that this Mm -hmm. is going to be my child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How have you worked with, you know, once you've had to break confidentiality of your patient and disclose it to a concerned family member, what are some things you've done to earn that trust back from your identified patient? Mm -hmm. Well... I haven't had to break confidentiality too many times, but usually when I have, it was very dramatic. So, um, you know, one time, this still makes me really sad. I saw a high school girl for a couple of years here in Fort Collins, and Mm -hmm. she opened up to me that she was drinking so heavily that uh, she had passed out and hit her head. She'd fallen down the stairs and hurt her neck. And and then she had one night where she um, stumbled out of the house and 
almost froze to death. So I told her, I said, I'm going to have to tell your parents. She was 17. She was furious. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you tell my parents, I will never come back. And I called them and they seemed strangely kind of flat and uninterested in the call. And I never heard from her again. I reached out to her, called her, emailed nothing. Mm. So I have no idea what happened. You know, Mm. they get this weird interaction on the phone. I've actually had occasions where uh, people confessed that they were thinking of hurting themselves or family members. Mm -hmm. And I contacted the family members and it went well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a scary call to make to say that, hey, your family member is threatening to kill himself or herself and and or hurt you. And, and it actually good things came from it. The therapy moved forward and the family came in closer. We were able to make some treatment changes. So mm-hmm. those are scary calls to make. They like, are. And you also just have, I have to steel myself to know that sometimes doing the right thing means that that's going to end the treatment yeah, with end me. End the treatment and make us feel uncomfortable, stretching us beyond some of our boundaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the main confidentiality struggle that I face every week is I do a lot of addiction medicine. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I see young adults who are you know, injecting meth and heroin and who knows what else they're buying on the street. Mm -hmm. And some of them are living at home. um, And, you know, arguably they are in imminent danger. I mean, if you're injecting opioids, you're buying on the street, you're, Mm -hmm. but we also know that that could go on for a long time. And so that's the thing I struggle with a lot when I know someone is doing, especially, you know, like IV use, when does that become risky enough that I'm going to potentially blow up the treatment relationship. and oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's a hard one. And another thing I think, which I've seen a lot, particularly since the COVID and, you know, kids all isolating at home, locked down, is the increased use of uh, THC or other things as well. And that's where yeah. I struggle with not knowing how much is too much. What is in what these kids are taking? They're like, well, it's natural. It's, you know, THC. It's safe. Um, I'm okay taking it. And for me, I have a harder time there knowing, is this bad enough that I need to worry about breaking the kid's confidentiality or not? So I'm curious if you have thoughts, uh, Craig, with your expertise in the substance yeah. use field. A cu- I can remember a couple times I broke confidentiality with THC, uh, with, with weed, but actually THC. And these are patients with psychotic disorders who mm-hmm. uh, were at great risk of decompensating with THC. And I've, you know, I've talked about that on the podcast, but we regularly see people, you know, with stable psychotic illness, you know, on meds, if they're, especially if they're using pure THC, dabbing right. THC, they can have psychotic breaks. Right. So I can think of at least two cases where, excuse me at least two cases where i contacted parents broke confidentiality and said uh you know your your young adult or your older teenager is using right thc and is putting themselves at risk of psychotic break like how how do you know how much is too much use or you know i mean i know diagnosis can play a part yes if they already have a history of um psychosis yes the risk increases but even with some of our other kids who've not been going to school and staying at home and just either smoking all day or using other forms how can you tell um when it's too much yeah i th- i think this is why it's such a gray area you know if someone yeah. says i am going to shoot my boss or i'm going right. to blow up the school or i'm right. going to you know, overdose. Right. It's clear we have to act. But Correct. when someone says, yeah, I'm using so many substances that sometimes I wake up and vomit or 
I don't remember the last two days because right. I took so many Xanax that right. I blacked out and ended up naked in the front yard. Right. Yeah, is that a reportable thing? Right. I mean, I, I think what it comes down to, it is partially patient-dependent in the relationship we have with them, mm-hmm. the relationship we have with the family. Do we think that reaching out to the family is actually going to make anything different? Right. Or is it just going to make things worse? Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah. What was the, the second challenge that you, you mentioned, two challenges working with families? You know, when, uh, when our family walks in the door and they're like, yep, we are here because my child is having all these difficulties and fix them. You need to do something to fix them. It's not anything we do or not. And I talk to the kid alone and the kid's like, I'm doing great. I'm a good student. My parents fight all the time. There's all these issues going on. I'm not the one who needs meds. It's my parents mm-hmm. or my mom, you know, one, one parent more than the other, then it's like, okay, how do we now, they've come in with their identified patient, which is the teen or a younger kid, and you're not seeing that when you talk to the kid alone. So how do you diplomatically address this in a way that you can join with the family and do what's right for the family? So that's, that's a hard one sometimes because they're like, no, we're not here for us. You, mm-hmm. you need to diagnose my kids, start them on medications or therapy or both. But no, we, are not, we don't want family therapy. We are busy. We, are, we have a lot going on. Um, and the child is the identified patient. Yeah. That's a struggle. That's, that's a pretty common thing. It is. It is. Yeah, where you meet the kid, you know, the, the initial meeting with the parent, parents or parent and kid, you think, okay, boy, there's some serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you meet with the kid alone and get to know the kid. Right. You think, you're just a normal teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're a normal college student. Right. And ooh, your mom or ooh, your dad or that marriage or, mm-hmm. you know, or the sick sibling who's right. sucking all the emotional energy out Correct. of the family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah how, what are some principles or ways you think of that when the identified patient is not actually the primary problem? Uh, you know, it takes, again, that building relationship and trust. And again, just getting back to reminding ourselves, you know, when we start going to medical school, and we learn, we are taught and told we have to quickly diagnose and treat. And whereas with mental health, I almost say, step on the brake, take a step back, try to first establish that connection with the child, with the family. And gradually, I mean, this is going to include a lot of um, therapy. So when people are looking at us, no, we are not just pill pushers. We are trying to look at the bigger picture and try to address it in a way to say, yes, I hear you, mom or dad, that this is happening. But what if and the more they can trust you and build a relationship, most parents, I mean, if they've taken the first step to come and see you and, you know, take time out of their busy schedules with their kid, pulling the kid out of school, I think they're somewhat invested, even if they don't know. And if they hear it from you enough, most often than not, they do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in these cases where the identified patient is not the primary problem, these are some of the only times that I will meet with family member or members without the patient. Because mm-hmm. in general, I want the patient there 
for the dynamics. And I just don't want there to be any secrets. You know, sometimes right. parents or family members say, I want to meet with you alone mm-hmm. without Jimmy or mm-hmm. Elizabeth, you know, and I almost always say no, because I'll say, well, unless it's an issue of like scary safety or like right. something really heinous is about mm-hmm. to happen. But in these cases, I've done this a lot where I'll talk, say, to the teenager and I'll say, hey, so here's my take. My take is your mom is really overwhelmed or your mom is really struggling or your your parents' marriage seems really hard. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if it'd be okay if I met with mom or if I met with dad or if I met with both of them without you. Mm-hmm. And it's not to talk about you. Mm-hmm. It's to talk about how they can help you, how they can be better parents, mm-hmm. how I said it's for me to be your advocate. And that way I can get the the teenager or young adult like, oh yeah, good. Yeah, meet with mom. And then I've had a number of uh, young adults where most of my sessions were with mom mm-hmm. or dad or both. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, the mom will say, well, when are you going to meet with the daughter? Or, right. uh, or you know, when are you going to meet with my son? Like, mm, why don't you and I have a couple more sessions? Uh-huh. And and those are very, those are tricky to negotiate because after you know, the mom or dad or why are you meeting? And I say, look, I'm trying to better understand how to help you parent or how to help you guys come together mm-hmm. to help your child. And that has typically worked pretty well, yeah. where I end up not seeing the identified patient that often yeah. and I'm seeing the other ones more. Yeah. Have you have you done that before? I do it actually quite often. I have a lot of families when they come in in the waiting room, they're like, uh, is it okay if we talk to you alone first? And I, what I try to do is I still have them all come in first. I said, we'll get to that. How, how about the three of you or the two of you come into the room? And I start with saying, you know, I just want to get some basic information with all of you in the room. And at some point, I'm going to want to spend some time with the kid alone, as long as the kid's okay, and particularly as the kids get older. And I also tell parents, and I'd also like to talk to you all alone, as long as the kid's also okay with it. And I do make that separate time for them because, again, I, I, I can understand why parents, I want to talk to you alone. There could be many different reasons. Uh, maybe they want to talk about some of their own mental health or family mental health stuff that kids are not aware. They are not aware. They thought their uncle just died in a car accident and mm-hmm. not that he or she commi- you know, committed suicide. They might have read the kid's journal and they are concerned about some things, but they don't want to tell the kid that they've read the journal. Uh, so, you know, there could be many reasons. So I do um, say we can do that. But I'm also mindful to make sure I eventually spend almost equal amount of time with the kid. And I tell the parents, you know, I it's been over 20 minutes. So how about I want the kid to come in because I don't want the kid to be sitting in the waiting room thinking we are talking about mm-hmm. them. And I'm like, I'm going to have your mom and dad sit out for a little bit so we can chat as well. So, you know, we do that often, particularly as the kids get past 10 years of age when they're under six or seven most times the kids are you're just observing them and you're getting more history from parents but as they get older I try to give equal time when they're that nine to 14 and once they go past 14 or 15 I try to spend more time with the adolescents and maybe a little less with the parents mm-hmm. that's a great strategy I like that Another thing I see a lot is 
that the patient, identified patient, who's you know seeing you or me is probably on some medication, mm-hmm. that the family, in a usually well-meaning way, they don't let their family member be sad, be angry, mm-hmm. be quiet, be isolative, because they say, what's going on? Oh, yeah. Are you taking your meds? Yes. Are you taking... You know, have you been skipping your meds? Mm-hmm. You know, you need to increase your meds. Mm-hmm. You should call the doctor because your meds aren't working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes that's right. So, I mean, one of the advantages of having family involved is there an early warning system. Right. But sometimes I think family, again, often well-meaning families can be telling people, you know, you yeah. didn't take your pills. Right. And there are people like, what? I can't have a sad day. Right. I can't be frustrated. Right. I can't be non-talkative or if I'm too talkative. Right. And it can feel really oppressive, I think, yes. for, for Agreed. patients. Agreed. And, you know, and that's where we really also talk about what does normal um, teenagers look like? What is acceptable? What is not? And, you know, and it's not a hard and fast rule. It's a spectrum. You know, some kids may go through teenage years without acting out very much or having major meltdowns or isolating from family. But when we see that, and this is coming from an area of concern for parents because they're like, oh my gosh, what maybe, you know, he's not talking much to me today. Maybe he's more depressed. So really also addressing our parenting needs being met separately outside of just in your office? Are they seeing a therapist to talk about what has it been like for me to have a child with significant mental health issues? Am I, is my anxiety being addressed a little outside of it? And for both kids and parents to know medications, when they work their best, maybe 60% effective. And the rest of it is, I mean, particularly when we're talking for depression or anxiety, we do need to be working on improving our um, coping skills to help with that as well. Mm-hmm. In the um, episode I did with Jeremy Dubin on addiction, he talked how crucial about how crucial it is that the patient, the addict, and the treatment team's on the same page with the goals. Mm-hmm. You know, and I find it's hard enough with my one-on-one patients to make sure our goals are aligned. Right. Because I'm always trying to listen, okay, what are your goals? Mm-hmm. Thinking like, what are my goals in terms of your health and well-being? I'm trying to work on those. But then I think... When you bring in a family, let's just say mom, dad, and child, Mm -hmm. whether that's small child, you could have four different sets of goals. Right. You know, Usha's goals, dad's goals, mom's goals, kids' goals. Right. And I think, in my mind, that is also one of the big challenges of working with families is trying to figure out what are those goals. Because a lot of times people don't even know. They might be very clear, like, I want my kid to, um, you know, get out of his room or stop smoking weed or... But I think a lot of times parents or kids might have goals that aren't, they're kind of unconscious. Right. And they may be working against the treatment because they haven't really elucidated what what they want. Right, right. And that's where, you know, at least starting with a clear history and, you know, what are some things you are hoping to address by coming to see me? What parts are you going to know if you're there? What are some things that we are still struggling with six months into treatment? Okay, you came in worried about this kid, uh, worrying a lot, and maybe some of that's been addressed. Now there might be some newer things. Well, he's not worrying much, but he's not able to focus. He or she's not able to do well in school. So we have to periodically revisit uh, what our goals are, particularly with kids and teenagers, because things change. The diagnosis changes as they get older. Mm -hmm. So really being mindful of that and never assuming once we identified and treated that this is going to be what it is for the next 10 years of their lives. Mm -hmm. 
When I started working with teenagers after residency, I just assumed that the med, if there were a battle or disagreement, would be that the parents would want the kid on meds and the kid wouldn't. But I'm curious to your experience. In my experience with teenagers, it's almost always the opposite. That the teenager or the young adult saying, please, I, I want to start medication or whatever therapy. And it's the parents who are often very hesitant for some, maybe some of the reasons we talked about right. before. But do you see that too? That Mixed. I mean, I probably as they are getting to be teenagers, the teenagers may say, I don't need it. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I may be a little more impulsive. I'm fine. And what, I mean, unless again, we are looking at uh, some serious psychiatric issues, schizoaffective or really bad bipolar that started early. Uh, if these are kids who are somewhat anxious, maybe their focus is a bit off and they're saying, I want to go off medications. I bring the kid and the mom in and say, you're 15. You need to be a big part of trying to decide is this treatment right or wrong for you. And if you're adamant that you want to go off the medication, let's sit and talk about, okay, how long do you want to go off medications? What are some things if your family or your school or your friends notice about you, would you then be willing to commit to it full time? Because you have some parents saying, I'm giving it, my, the medication to this child every morning, making sure they swallow it. And, you know, it becomes a control thing. And with teenagers, they're always going to win if you're going to get into a power <laughs> struggle with them. <laughs> they're always going to win. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> So really picking and choosing our battles. And I tell parents that too. Okay, maybe uh, this kid has been diagnosed with ADHD and now is insisting he wants to go off medication and try. You need to maybe give it a small window and have clear guidelines. And okay, this is how we know. Yes, maybe you outgrown it. You don't need it. Or you need to get back on it because X, Y, and Z. And we talked about it early. It's always easier if you talk about this early, have a plan in place, as opposed to waiting till everything goes downhill and then emotions get in the way of having any uh, clear or uh, fruitful conversation. Mm-hmm. finding that parents, let's say of adolescents and kids in general, are wanting a diagnosis or are... They do. They do. Uh, Parents particularly more so. Kids are probably saying, I don't want to be labeled up. I'm fine. I'm just, you know, here. But parents do. And I can get why. Because if they're bringing them to our office and thinking of putting their child on a medication, uh, again, we are, uh, our medical system is such, we're like, here's the diagnosis, here's the treatment. So I have a lot more parents coming to me saying, what does my child have? He's, is he bipolar? Is he anxious? Is he OCD? And um, the answer is uh, yes. Yeah. Yes to that's all those. A, <laughs> yes that's the yes. hard conversation to have. And I always tell parents, and that's something I think I've learned over the course of doing this is I don't need to be pressured to make a diagnosis right away and say, this is what it is. I'm okay telling parents, I don't know. I don't know if your child is bipolar or not. 
if they are seven, eight or nine. Mm -hmm. I would say let's just treat whatever is getting in the way of the kid functioning, of your family functioning with whatever means, whether it's therapy, medications, making some modification to their school. And time will tell us what their diagnosis is. Sometimes, you know, you treat kids for anxiety and then 10 years later they're in college and have their first um, manic episode. So diagnosis is something which could be moving. Uh, Kids are moving targets. Mm -hmm. You don't just start there and say, I said this and I'm right. And being open to acknowledging, I don't know all the answers. And we'll work together in helping any way we can. Yeah. And then not only with kids and adolescents is diagnosis difficult and evolving. And I agree, prognosis. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of clinicians don't like to work with kids because yeah, diagnosis and prognosis is so difficult. And parents want to know you have your 13 year old, your 18 year old, your six year old, you want to know what's wrong and what's the future hold. And you know, if you're working with, you know, a 32 year old married woman with bipolar two, you probably have a pretty decent guess on how things are going to roll for Mm -hmm. her because you can look back at the last 20 years. And, you know, but with kids, I mean, you've seen this too. I have teenagers who seemed sad or a little tortured who four or five years later were, you know, persistently severely mentally ill and Mm -hmm. Mm non-functioning. I have teenagers who I saw, well, actually, this is an interesting story. I saw this woman years ago when I worked with you. She was 15, 16. I saw her for a couple of years. And my last visit with her, I think she was about to turn 17. She said, I'm going to kill myself. And for all these reasons, and you've really tried hard, and I appreciate you trying, but it's a done deal, and you won't see me again. And uh, got the fam- you know, families involved, everything, mm-hmm. and you know, I just thought, oh no, and yeah. maybe six years later, I was at a restaurant in town, and uh, this woman said, "Dr. Hecock," mm-hmm. and she looked at me. I said, mm-hmm. "Oh," she said, "Do you remember me?" I said, "No," and then she said, "Oh, I'm so and so." Oh, yeah, she said. I lived, I made it, she said, and I'm happy, and I'm getting married, and all this, and I just thought, this is someone who was hell-bent on killing herself, and six years later, she's doing fine. Right. So, I mean, that's such a beautiful story, and I think it It also is. is a humbling story, because prognosis, you know with young people. Right. Who knows? Who knows, exactly. And, you know, and that's where I try to remind parents, um, don't look more than two steps ahead right now. Let's get through this crisis. Some of this is your anxiety, trying to plan what their future is going to look like, what is your future going to look like. So unless these are kids who have significant cognitive limitations, in which case I do tell parents, you know, some of this is not going to get better. Let's try to explore some, you know, services, whether it's, you know, our Foothills Gateway, which helps kids whose cognitions under 70 to help set them up for adulthood in as independent way as they possibly can. Or if these are real early psychotic symptoms where you can really say, yeah, this is not going to get better. I'm an optimist. And I say parenting is a scary, um, scary job for most of us. If we can pass on that ounce of optimism to parents to say, yeah, there's a chance this is going to get better. Most parents are going to hold on to that and gives them the strength to continue to do this hard job of parenting. Yeah.
guessing, Ushi, you may not see nearly as much of this as I do, but one of the biggest things I see in family challenges is failure to launch. And, mm-hmm. and I was talking about this with my wife the other day. I, I almost never see young women who don't launch. And if, yeah. if I do, it's they have something really serious going on. But mm-hmm. I have so many young, you know, 20-something, even yeah. early some 30-something men. Well, yeah, they have depression or anxiety. I mean, you know, they have, but they can't launch. And yeah. so we have these very oftentimes frustrating, painful family meetings where mm-hmm. the parents are just up in arms. Like, what do I do with mm-hmm. you know my kid who mm-hmm. won't? get out of bed and just smokes weed and plays mm-hmm. video games mm-hmm. and is surly and you know has no will and this seems like it's going to go on forever right. and right yeah do you see much of that oh, definitely seeing a lot more of that particularly since the pandemic and the online schooling option school refusal has become huge i have families calling how do how do we get our kids back to school uh it's these are uncertain times um so yeah i do and uh the younger the kids are it's easier to do it but as the kids get older and stuck uh you know again and that's where we need to have some plans in place and trying to identify the root cause as well you know we have kids who um have struggled with severe anxiety that may not have been addressed and that might be crippling more when they first leave home and go to college that's why these kids are enrolled in college they have not attended more than maybe one or two classes and uh it comes back to the confidentiality colleges generally don't reach out to parents and let them know that oh we haven't seen your child in any class until it's almost a bit too late and that is the age where we have breakthrough symptoms of any serious mental health illness so it's like a multifactorial thing why we see more of it mm-hmm. and as far as trying to work with that i mean yeah I'm a big fan of um, starting trade school by middle school on. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all with college learning independence. And early on, if you're able to identify, okay, this kid doesn't need algebra 2 and calculus, but these are kids' strengths, our education system should be focused more on strength-based and not a one-size-fits-all. And it's a systemic issue. Yeah. Tell me what you think of this theory. My wife, who you know, who's a therapist mm-hmm. as well. We were talking about this issue the other day. Why so many young men failing to launch, but not really so many women? And here, here's this sort of uh, theory we put together. <laughs> this is very new. <laughs> Tell me what you think. So uh, there was a really interesting episode of this Jungian Life podcast recently, and it was on libido. Uh-huh. And it was not just about libido as sexual energy, but libido as your vital life force. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it got me thinking about libido. And... I started wondering whether this failure to launch is a combination of libido, weed, and video games. And let me describe that further. That ever since there have been young men, arguably the strongest driving force for men to go out in the world and do their thing is Mm -hmm. libido. Mm -hmm. You know, both sexual energy and just life force energy. But now with a combination of weed, which is... You know, at this point, I wonder, is there anyone who doesn't smoke weed in Colorado? Please hold up your hand. And video games and, you know, 24-7 porn. Right. That you have a whole generation of young men who, you know, may have some predisposition to depression and anxiety, but also are finding there's no real reason to leave. That what you need, you know, the libido, the sexual energy that you needed to go out and find a partner, a mate, 
you can get that satisfied at home. And then if you just stir in enough weed and video games, you can just keep that tamp down. And I think those three factors, not that women don't smoke weed or play right. video games or have libido, but I think, I don't know, that's... That's my burgeoning yeah, theory. Yeah, I mean, that, you may certainly have something that I've not really given him much thought, but I'm sure, um, you know, there's got to be some uh, some validity behind what you're telling me. And the other piece, too, when you look at women in general, they tend to be more rule followers. They are going to class. They are doing more. And teenage boys generally tend to push the envelope more. And, you know, and we are also in this, again, back to our education system. It's that one size fits all. And the way our education system is set up now, it's probably more conducive for girls to succeed in that. And there's not a lot of room for rule breaking that is available much in our society anymore. We've gotten stricter with what are the do's and don'ts and the consequences are also a lot higher mm -hmm. when you don't follow the rules. So I think, yeah, it might be a combination of both, but I, I have to think about that a bit more. <laughs> I've never thought about that theory. Listeners, uh, <laughs> uh, call out to listeners. You can write into me, see, tell me what you think of that theory. Since we're on this topic of marijuana, weed, um, that just seems to be not just you know ubiquitous with patients, but it's such a family issue. Mm -hmm. I have so many family mm -hmm. meetings where the issue is weed, and yeah. we go round and round. So the young adult or teenager is like, "I'm going to smoke weed," or "This right. is what I'm doing," and the parents are completely, right. you know, torn up about that. And yeah, what are some general ways you? I'm sure you see that too. Oh yes, I do. And and, and I actually have some kids coming to me first and saying, "Can you prescribe me something natural first and not anything else?" And and you know we can get all um, I guess stuffy about it and say you cannot, but you also have to be realistic and work with what we have. So I usually try to work with my patients if I know they're smoking a lot or just in general using weed in any form, but they are still struggling with anxiety and depression. I first try to at least see if I can get a buy-in of saying, how about for the next four to six weeks, if you're going to try something it's less likely to work as long as you're using this much. So instead of saying you absolutely cannot, which I used to do and figured out they're basically just not telling me what they're doing, I'd rather at least know. So I tried to find a compromise of saying, what if you just cut down 50% of what you're using? Or for the next four weeks, can you commit to not using anything if you're going to try something else? And, you know, and when you try to meet them halfway, they're more likely to be honest with you and say, no, sorry, can't do that. I won't do that. In which case, then you get to make that call. Or if they say, okay, I'm willing to try for this many weeks. And I'm like, just be honest with me. I don't have to share everything with your parents. But if I'm going to try you on something for any mood symptoms, I need to know what you're using and not using. And I just try to meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. If we get high and mighty and you absolutely cannot use and otherwise I won't treat you. I mean, under a few circumstances, that is valid. But otherwise, we are basically just putting more barriers for these yeah. families. Yeah. Yeah, my approach, uh, and this is hard for a lot of parents to hear, is harm reduction. Yeah. And that I say, you know, trying to go to the mat with a zero tolerance policy for weed for teenagers is, right. is just highly unlikely to work right. and likely right. to just stir up a hornet's nest of, right. of angry teenagerdom. Uh, so I talk a lot about this idea of there being different kinds of weed, just like there's different kinds of alcohol, you know? Correct. So I tell them, look, if your kid were drinking, would you want them drinking beer or would you want them guzzling vodka? Mm -hmm. 
you would want them drinking beer. Right. And if your kid's using weed, you really want them smoking flour. You want them smoking lower THC strains. You do not want them using pure right. THC right. concentrates because the THC concentrates are what you know trigger panic mm-hmm. and psychosis mm-hmm. and mania and mm-hmm. just chaos. Right. So usually... I can get parents on board with that. But some are just like, no, my kids should not be using drugs. Right. But again, it's so ingrained now in right. our life here. That yep, yep. And not just Colorado. Now it's across <laughs> everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usha, as, we, as we're wrapping up our discussion here on families and mental illness and, and working with both, I wonder if there's some families or patients or lessons learned that come to mind. I'll just start with one, and this might trigger you, trigger you to think of some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with this man for years, probably six years, in his uh, late 50s when I started working with him, profoundly depressed and had been very suicidal and he's married. His kids were grown. And early on I said, Hey, I really want to meet your wife. I, I just find that meeting spouses is really important, mm-hmm. but he always blew it off. And I'm, you know, I would bring it up every few months. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someday. And, but what was interesting about him is I never really could, I felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. You know, when he just talked about the pain of his life and the desperation and how he wanted an out and, it, I just had the feeling like the story didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Something was missing. And then, I don't know, six years into treatment, you know, the 58th time I asked him, he said, okay, I'll bring my wife. And then he brought his wife. And his wife, the moment she walked in, I thought, she's basically schizophrenic. Wow. She is like a non-functioning, completely disabled, psychiatrically disabled human mm-hmm. being. And... As she sat down on the couch, I just thought, oh, this is the deal. Mm-hmm. This is the missing piece. Mm-hmm. He's been caring for her for so long. and uh, But he couldn't tell me that. I think he was ashamed that, that he wanted out. He didn't want to be the caretaker. Ashamed that his wife was making him feel so hopeless. And... and it's like when he brought her in, it's like he revealed his biggest secret. Oh, yeah. And just instantly I knew like, oh. And then I also thought, this is example number 10,226, that if you don't meet at least one family member, like, you are missing so much. Yeah. On that note, how did it, how did your treatment process with him change after that fell into, the, or yeah. clicked? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually sad because he... I tried to talk about it with him the next few sessions. Oh, thank you for bringing your wife. And mm-hmm. and it looks like she really struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like she very depressed. Mm-hmm. He didn't, he wouldn't talk about it. Okay. He, he couldn't even speak of it. Wow. So it was almost like he, after six years, said, okay, I'll, I'll show you this thing. I'll peel the curtain back and you can look. 
but we're not going to talk mm-hmm. about it. So we never okay, talked okay. about he it. He just wasn't ready. Yeah, he wasn't ready. And that that went on for a long time, and it's a long story. But I think the, the, the point of that story is, you know, family, we, we are familial beings. We are yes. cultural beings. And yes. I'm reminded, too, that, you know, most psychiatric illness is 50 to 60% heritable yes and the rest is environmental Absolutely. environmental read family yep read parenting agreed. agreed read family dynamics yeah agreed yeah that's powerful yeah 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 any cases that you think about that um really change the way you think about families or mm-hmm. sort of woke yeah. you up on that yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I'll say a specific case as opposed to just um, something that I've learned over the course of time. You know, you come out of medical school, finish your residency, fellowship, you're all gung-ho about diagnosing and treating right away. And I probably graduated on my fellowship, started working with kids right in the early like 2000s when bipolar madness took over the world, particularly our country. And uh, I think I, looking back, I was probably quicker at that point to avoid um, SSRIs and go the bipolar route, which something I've learned is to say it's okay to hit the brakes and do this slowly. There's not a rush to jump in and treat um, before we have a better picture. Mm-hmm. From a more um, existential or uh, humanistic perspective, I've learned a lot more uh, working with kids and families. I think it takes an act of faith to bring children into our world and, you know, optimism to say yes, because when you think about all the things that can go wrong, it truly shows the optimism and resilience of human beings to say, I'm going to procreate and bring more children into this world. And in that same note, uh, we are quick to, uh, I guess, personalize when our children don't do as well or if they are struggling with mental health issues. And going back to what you said, you know, a lot of this is heritable. Environmental and social factors make a huge difference, but so does the child's temperament. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Temperament is so huge. It's so huge. So huge. And it's okay to talk and say parenting is hard. Yes, there's a lot of joys with it, but we don't need to idealize being a parent. Parenting, it's, it's not a, there's no perfect parent. We all bring in our own beliefs and faith based on how we were raised. We are either like, yes, this is the only way to do it, or this is the absolute wrong way to do it. And we need to remember most parents are doing their best they're doing the best they can and best what they know how and not being quick to judge. So for me, mm-hmm. that part has been uh, something I've learned as I become a parent and as I get older, uh, giving grace yeah. to parenthood and uh, appreciating how hard it can be too in, in addition to all the joys it brings. Mm-hmm. Boy, it's, I'll just speak for myself. It is so fortunate for my patients <laughs> yeah. that I had kids... Um, before becoming a psychiatrist, because I will admit, before I had kids, I was so judgy of other parents, you know, kids who would yell on the plane or, 
you know, make a ruckus. I remember I was at this dinner party and the little toddler of the people hosting the party was taking their CDs and throwing them all around the house like Frisbees. And I remember thinking, these are shitty parents. These are bad parents. And then I got my karmic retribution because one of my twins... Uh, when she was a toddler, she loved to just throw the CDs all around, and there was no stopping that. Right, right. So I think you know one of uh, one of the things that I've taken from parenting is yeah, my kids came out the way they are. Yes, you know people will comment on them in like a parenting way, like I somehow molded them or shaped right. them. I was like they they came out like yep. this, and I think yep. you know we see that working with our our patients, you know, temperament is huge, you know, absolutely. And, you know, I really think of parenting is like, parenting is like a poker game, you know, you get your hand, you get dealt your five or seven card hand, and that's, that's the genetics. And that's your hand. And then parenting is playing that hand, but make the best of it. Some kids are a real flush. Some kids, you could literally like throw them out in the desert with no school, and they'll they'll invent new things. Right. Other kids have the best nurturing, seemingly, and yeah. they develop borderline personality disorder right. and end yes. up quasi-homeless. So, yeah. you know, I think it sounds like both of us have that perspective that yeah. the more we can help the parents we work with, like, yes. you know what? Absolutely. We know you're trying to love them. We know you're trying to be patient. And, right. Right. you know, your kid was born oppositional right. or your kid was born very sensitive. Yeah. And that's not a parenting thing. Right. That's a thing. Yeah. And be, you know... Be uh, quick to take some credit for things you've done well, but don't be in such a hurry to take all the blame or shame when you're dealing with kids and mental health because it's not all you. It's It takes a village. Yeah. We are all each playing the roles of the star, the director, and the producer of our own life's movie. And for this reason, we don't always see ourselves clearly. And this can make mental health treatment even more complex than it already is. So for all the therapists and practitioners out there, if your client or patient isn't getting better, if their story doesn't make sense, if you aren't sure what to do next in treatment, invite a family member to a session. And I promise you, you won't regret it.